Chapter 11 of The Mute Singer by Anna Cora Mowat Ritchie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Chapter 11 Convalescence. When the Sabbath ushered in another week, Sylvie was able to rise from her couch. Propped by pillows in an antiquated armchair belonging to Ursuld, she sat by the window, listening to the music of church bells and gazing upon the little pot of mignonette that still stood upon the window sill. Though Dr. Suvestra had sternly issued a decree for the banishment of all flowers from the sick chamber, there was nothing else visible upon which her beauty-loving eyes could rest with passing pleasure. Dingy housetops and congregations of chimneys hemmed in the prospect. The faintly colored, straggling mignonette looked feeble and drooping, for it had often lacked care, or been thrust aside or forgotten during her illness. She involuntarily compared the sickly plant, which now sent forth no perceptible odor, to herself. A little sunshine and water, she mused, will revive this poor flower and call forth its lost perfume. Are there no strengthening and freshening influences to restore my voice? Ah, I remember well, it was this humble little flower, that blooming in secret, charmed me by its gift of fragrance, and inspired the hope that, despite my own obscurity and lowliness, my gift would not be wasted. Sylvie's health now slowly but steadily improved. Each day she grew stronger, but no sign gave the faintest promise of restoration to her vocal powers. She seldom essayed to speak. The effort had so often proved futile that, little by little, a disinclination to make the attempt grew upon her. She communicated her wishes or made replies by the most eloquent pantomime, and, when that wordless medium proved insufficient, the porcelain slate and the little silver pencil of Maitre Bougeot were in requisition. Dame Benot, Mitayu, and a few other unpretending but devoted friends were permitted to visit her, yet all their tender inquiries and touching words of sympathy conjured no chance sound from her lips. That she was mute appeared to be a matter of course, not that she did not cherish the deep underlying hope that this spell of silence would one day be broken, but a heavenly voice within whispered that by unmurmuringly accepting the present, and trusting in the future, she could alone receive the good made possible to unrebellious spirits. God's patience, which lightens sorrows through endurance, not combat, sank softly into her meek and chastened soul. A holy trust preserved her from ever doubting the wisdom which permitted her affliction, a trust which does not only deem that blessed which we receive, but believes greater blessings are oftentimes sent through that which we lose. God bless all our gains, say we, but God bless all our losses, better suits with our degree. Sylvie soon began to experience that delightful sense of convalescence which makes an invalid feel as if the whole system were freshened and renewed. It seemed to her as though her soul grew stronger and more largely fitted for life's manifold purposes, as its delicate receptacle gained new vigor. This pleasant state was often broken in upon by her mother's contrarious moods, which tested all the patience, trust, and spiritual strength that Sylvie had acquired. On one occasion, when Maitre Bourgeau's magical violin had aroused her to a pitch of musical ecstasy, Madame de la Roche took advantage of a momentary pause to say, I have been waiting some time, Maitre Bourgeau, to make a suggestion of importance. You must excuse my taking this opportunity. I want to speak to you about that piano. Here the cumbersome old thing has been occupying space and eating up gold unopened for nearly two months. It was always hard work to pay for its hire, and now what it cost is money quite thrown into the gutter. 
Sylvie will never need it more, for she only played accompaniments to her songs, and there's no chance of her singing again in a hurry. Won't you oblige me by attending to this matter? The rude shock of those words sent a convulsive shudder through Sylvie's frame, and her quivering lips moved without sound as her nerveless fingers grasped her pencil. Boujou dived into his snuff-box, and a liberal and vehement snuffing of its contents partially smothered a sound very much like the gnash of teeth blended with a muttered oath. But tenderness towards Sylvie had taught him self-control when he was irritated by her mother, and he answered in a calmly caustic tone, "'Your prudence is highly commendable, madame. I will attend to the piano.' Until I send for it, you will be good enough to leave the instrument where it now stands. But it is understood that you give it up from today, and henceforth it will cost you nothing. I shall feel more satisfied when it is gone, for there is no use of nourishing false hopes, resumed Madame de la Roche pertinaciously. It's a deal better to make up one's mind at once that there is no hope. And I am sure there never was for any of us. Yet there is Sylvie, who, in spite of all we have undergone, and notwithstanding her own misfortune, persist in saying that she don't believe in luck. Sylvie wrote upon her slate in reply, I do not believe in luck simply because I do not believe in chance. I do believe in God. The ways of God are mysterious, inscrutable. But God cannot be wrong. Oh, that's a very proper theory, replied her mother, glancing over the words Sylvie had traced. But I don't see that it proves itself when all one's best intentions are frustrated and all one's most prudent and promising plans are brought to naught. Sylvie wrote, We have all hoped great things. We have sown, as we thought, the seed for a great harvest. If God choose that our large hopes should wear the shape of small realities, if it be his will that the harvest should wither but ripened, he who is never motiveless has an end in view which our clay-clouded vision cannot yet behold. We have only to be willing to receive the small gifts he sends instead of the great ones we coveted, and be patient until our eyes are opened to see God's reason for allowing us this much and no more. If this is easy preaching, hard practicing, resumed the mother, shaking her head mistrustfully. There is no getting over the fact that all the good gifts of this life are very unequally distributed. Sylvie paused a while, as though musing upon this seeming truth, then took up her pencil, softly smiling as she wrote, not unequally in reality, however unequal the distribution may appear. If everyone is allowed just the amount of success and prosperity, is subjected to just the degree of trial or temptation, is placed in precisely the situation which will develop his true character, bring out his evil inclinations through exciting causes, that he may become aware of and conquer them, and call forth his noble attributes, that they may be perfected by use, can we call man's allotment portions unequal? If to fit man for highest possible felicity, which he is capable of experiencing here and hereafter, be the great end of existence, can we talk of inequality when that end is obtained? Madame de la Roche read aloud what Sylvie had written and ejaculated, I cannot imagine where the child gets her singular ideas. She grows a deal too wise for her mother's simple comprehension, but with all her superior understanding, I don't think her logic will ever convince me that there was any necessity for our misfortunes. I'll never believe that it was for the best that she should suddenly be struck dumb, just as all Paris had gone crazy about her voice. 
and I cannot see what good is to come of our being lifted to the topmost pinnacle of hope to be cast down to the lowest depths of despair. No, I maintain I shall never see any good in that. Sylvie not only believed in, but she had begun to see that hidden good which her mother resolutely doubted. An involuntary self-examination had been the result of the many long reveries into which she had fallen during her convalescence, and had revealed how injurious to her own character might have proved the tinsel clink of compliments that had sounded in her ears. The homage that had lifted her to startling heights in her own estimation, the perils by which she had been surrounded in an atmosphere of adulation, perils which she might not have been strong enough to encounter. Then her father, she vainly tried to close her eyes upon the conviction that his reckless prodigality could only be stemmed by the check of poverty. She did not want to admit to herself that this first harsh lesson was sent to him also, because through privation and adversity he could alone be made aware of his inconsequent extravagance, or be taught the most common prudence, or be inspired with a sense of the honesty of economy. Sylvie was now able to walk about the chamber, and if her mother had permitted, she would have resumed some of her former duties. Dr. Suvestra, who attended her daily and had made numerous experiments upon her throat, exhausting the virtues of caustic and iodine and other potent agents, finally pronounced that she was well enough to receive benefits from fresh air, and ordered her to drive out several times a day every week. This opinion had been given the day before the 1st of November, which is set apart for the great fete of All Saints' Day. That general holiday was most welcome to Maitre Bourgeot, for it afforded him a period of rare freedom. The number of his pupils had so rapidly increased that he had little leisure, and the moments devoted to Sylvie were snatched at intervals between his lessons. As soon as he heard the doctor's order, Maitre Bourgeot determined to see it obeyed. Pierre de la Chaise, is the usual resort of the Parisian populace upon this particular fete day. But Maître Bourgeot decided to carry Sylvie to Jardin de la Plante, as a locality where the crowd would be avoided, and she could enjoy air and exercise with more freedom. In so gentle a tone that no one who had only heard him address others would have recognized his voice, he said to her, would not you and Mademoiselle Ursule like to pass a day beneath the trees and listen to the birds instead of to a worse musician? If you would, we will go to Jardin de la Plante tomorrow. There, there, no need of writing your answer, as she took up her pencil. Your face has replied, and I will come for you tomorrow at ten. Maitre Bourgeau had now obtained such decided influence over the parents of Sylvie, who felt how much depended upon his good will that neither of them threw any obstacle in the way of his project. Sylvie had given no thought to her toilette, or rather she had not remembered that her scanty wardrobe would not allow her to make a presentable appearance. But as her health was gradually restored, Ursule had ventured to suggest to Bourgeot that his protégé would need additions to her wardrobe. The hundred franc to the young singer had been exhausted during her illness, but the trustworthy dressmaker was ordered to look upon the musician as Sylvie's banker, and received a carte blanche to purchase whatever was necessary for her health, her comfort, or her toilette. On the morning of the fete, Ursule entered the young girl's room before she had risen, and placed beside her a neatly folded bundle and a bandbox. While Sylvie watched her visitor with a wondering eyes, the latter complacently, and with tantalizing deliberation, extracted pin after pin from the cover of the package, and drew forth 
a black silk dress, a pelteau to match, and a clean linen chemisette with sleeves, a pair of dainty gaiters, and gloves. She opened the van box and exhibited a black velvet bonnet ornamented only with a bunch of pansies in the white cap within. Ursule had consulted economy as well as elegance in the choice of attire, and had duly reflected that black silk would be unexceptionable on many occasions that would necessarily present themselves if Sylvie returned to her artist life, and would outwear many other materials. Now get up and let us see how the dress fits. I made it only by your old measure, said Ursule gaily. As for the bonnet, I am sure that will become you. Do you not approve of my choice? Sylvie nodded in the affirmative, but extended her hand for the slate, an action that seemed to indicate that her surprise and pleasure were mingled with some uneasiness. Ursule stopped her, after the style of Maitre Beaujou. It was odd to see how often she copied his manners. I know what you want to ask. You are such a mercenary little individual. You are troubled about my extravagance. Set your heart at rest. Ever since you have been ill, Maitre Bourgeot has furnished me at intervals with portions of the hundred francs that Monsieur Legrand paid to him for you, and I flatter myself that I have expended what was entrusted to me with praiseworthy economy. As for the grand toilette you are to make today, that is a matter arranged between Maitre Bourgeot and myself. That her soul's taste was irreproachable, and Sylvie's attire became her, the compliment which her aesthetic teacher looked, but did not utter, bore ample testimony. In her new attire, her figure seemed taller, more womanly, and the graceful cut pale toe concealed its exceeding slenderness. The sweet, pure face that looked out from its surrounding black velvet, like the picture of some virgin saint from a somber frame, was spiritualized by the very parlor of the countenance and the absence of rounded outlines. The great blue eyes shone with the celestial softness of a sorrow accepted and meekly borne. Upon the lips was the seal of peace, breaking their characteristic firmness into a half-smile. It was a glorious autumn day. The air was slightly bracing, but not cold. The golden sunlight tinged all creation with a Midas touch, yet did not oppress with its fervor, or dazzle with its brilliancy. The last time Maitre Bourgeot had officiated as his gifted pupil's escort, his narrow means had permitted him to provide only a common fiacre. But now, a voiture d'armée, the nearest approach to a private carriage that could be obtained, stood at the humble entrance. Not that elegance had any weight with the old musician. It was the comfort of his dear invalid, and the fitness of the conveyance as regarded her that he alone consulted. As he carefully conducted her down the steep stairs, with what a rush of emotion she recalled that night, when she had darted lightly up those steps, her elastic feet winged by excitement, her heart wildly throbbing with undefined hopes, her whole frame vibrating with the echo of prophecies of future greatness which had electrified her ears that night when her soul had sprung up, full-saturated of a sudden, and pierced through its chrysalis clay, and floated in an atmosphere of sunshine and flowers, freighted with sweet scents and delicious sounds, that night, when her spirit first recognized its fellowship with beings of a loftier sphere through the might of music and the freemasonry of genius, Maitre Bougeot knocked at Ursule's door in passing, and she came forth at the summons, ready for the drive. Beside the carriage steps, holding open the door, stood Mitayu, in his best threadbare suit. Sylvie smilingly saluted him as she took her seat 
Ursule sat down beside her, but before Bougeot ascended to his place, he said to the boy, Now, up with you beside the driver. The late cynic, having once tasted the sweetness of imparting happiness, was often moved by an impulse to drink deeper of the sacred chalice, and yet he was half ashamed of his kind promptings. He would never have thought of excusing his own rudeness or hardness, but now he said apologetically, I thought the little hunchback might be of service if we wanted anyone to wait upon us or go on an errand. He has evinced such absolute devotion to you during your illness, and the little monkey is such a devotee to our art that, as it costs nothing, I thought it would do no harm to let him have a drive, though, of course, I take him chiefly for the sake of his services. Sylvie comprehended her master too well to answer, save by a look of thanks. Encircled by Ursule's supporting arm, she leaned back in the carriage, striving to calm the agitation produced by the vivid recollections that crowded in her brain. The fresh, invigorating air caressed her flushing cheeks and cooled her brow. The easy motion of the carriage soothed her and lulled the pain of two busy thoughts until her wanted tranquility gradually returned. Bourgeot, as he silently contemplated his opposite companions, wondered how he could ever have fancied Sylvie's countenance positively ugly, and the face of her warm-hearted friend too plain for his fastidious eyes to dwell upon. Ursule's physiognomy was so sympathetic, so trust-inspiring, that it seemed impossible for one to whom it was familiar to deem it homely, yet not a single liniment was susceptible of the description. Her eyes were neither large nor small, neither light nor dark, but of a nameless, nondescript color. Her forehead was neither high nor low nor broad nor narrow. Her nose was neither of classic aquiline nor intellectual Roman nor vulgar snub, but the piquant turned-up order. It was simply an ordinary nose. Her mouth had no more marked peculiarity of shape. It was just a commonplace mouth. Yet something subtly shining out from within gave light and life to all her features, blended them into harmony, and endowed them with the capacity of multiform expression. In her person, too, there was the same absence of emphasis. She was neither tall nor short, nor plump nor thin. All her proportions were mediocre. But neutral tints were merely her outward coloring, and not the painting of her mental mold. A tender heart, united to a strong common sense, better defined as the most uncommon kind of sense, gave force to her whole character and combined a quick perception of what was just and right with a merciful leaning toward the side of gentleness and an unselfish consideration for the well-being of others. The drive seemed only too short for the silent party, who appeared to need no words to communicate to each other their quiet but deep enjoyment. When they reached the Jardin de Plantes, Bourgeot entrusted to Mitaillou a covered basket and a blanket shawl, and the boy's mouth-stretching, eye-kindling delight was greatly increased by the discovery that he could actually be of service. Carriages are not permitted to enter the gates, and Sylvie, to her regret, found herself too feeble to visit the noteworthy objects which attract curious crowds to this celebrated garden. She had hardly traversed one of those beautiful alleys where the interlacing branches of tall trees shut out the midday sun when her feet faltered and her head drooped like a flower too heavy for its stem. Her scanty stock of strength was exhausted. Maitre Bourgeau spread the blanket shawl on the soft green grass beneath a magnificent clump of sugar maples 
and made her and her soul sit down. He reclined at a little distance, and Matayu stood leaning against a tree, keeping watch over the unopened basket, and finding abundant happiness in gazing at Sylvie, unrebuked and unnoticed. Some remark of her soul struck the rock of Bougeot's pent-up conversational powers, and the stream gushed forth with a sparkling freedom that amazed the admiring spinster. Her former awe had somewhat melted away, and it was now wholly dissolved by this genial flow, which seemed the involuntary outpouring of feelings and reflections so prisoned for years. Ursule's ingenious tongue was the key to her heart, and the former was soon set in motion and the latter unlocked. The reminiscences of the autumnal couple naturally traveled back to the sweet springtime over which memory cast her mellowing and felicitous light. Many were the anecdotes they related of their bygone days, until each felt as though youth had, for the moment, returned, and brought back some of its quick throbbings and joyful exhilaration, and bright glancings at life, and careless disdain of tyrannous form. Sylvie did not regret that she had forgotten her porcelain slate, for it allowed her to commune with her own thoughts. She sat reclining against the reddening maple tree, gazing up at the blue sky, through the golden and crimson canopy of quivering autumn leaves, and looking as though her soul were pouring forth anthems of thanksgiving. She had not the remotest conception of the length of time she had been sitting thus when Bourgeois signed to Matteo to bring him the basket, and, with her soul's assistance, a delicate collation was spread upon the smooth turf. Dainty bits of cold fowl, thin slices of tongue, snowy rolls and biscuits like cake, a few bonbons, and a small bottle of vin ordinaire. Matayu played the Ganymede, and, as Sylvie's position required him to kneel down to help her, the reverential action appeared to be the spontaneous manifestation of his own emotion. Her reverie was broken by his comical appearance while offering her a plate in this lowly attitude. Her sense of the ludicrous provoked, but kindness repressed her mirth, and Matayu did not suspect the merriment he excited. The air and the drive had sharpened her usually dull appetite, and the repast was partaken of with a novel relish. Lengthening shadows warned Bourgeois to look at his watch, of which he was not a little proud, for it had been presented by a class of pupils, and was the first which he had ever possessed. It was three o'clock, and he dreaded the least approach of dampness for Sylvie. But when he told her that the hour for their return had arrived, she grew quite rebellious in her reluctance to depart, and Bourgeot was obliged to assume his old tone of authority, though his attempt at sternness was a most transparent counterfeit. That happy day closed without alloy, and was written in shining characters in the chronicle of four lives. The next afternoon, when Bourgeau came, as usual, to charm away an hour with his music, he said to Sylvie, I gave Mademoiselle de Saint-Amour a lesson today. She was enchanted to hear that you had actually driven out. She insists upon sending her carriage tomorrow that you may enjoy another drive. Do you intend to refuse her polite offer, or will you go? May I? wrote Sylvie. I see no impropriety in your accepting, and I will invite the good Ursule to accompany you. What is the matter now? Why is that great shadow darkening over your face? About what are you thinking? I was thinking how far beneath Mademoiselle saint Amar I am, wrote Sylvie. Nonsense! God's gift of genius places you upon an equality with any of God's creatures. But if he revoke that gift by taking from me the power to prove my claims to what you call genius, what then? 
Bourgeois was more embarrassed by that straightforward question than he cared to betray. Assisted by a few pinches of snuff, he answered evasively. I don't like ifs. They always herald some disagreeable but often unlikely possibility. But we have no time for idle speculations if you want to hear the Carnival of Venice today, for I have another lesson to give shortly. When did Sylvie not want to hear the old violin? Bourgeot was in unusually high spirits when he came the next day to accompany Sylvie and Ursul on their drive. The carriage of the Marquis de saint Amar arrived at the appointed hour and gladdened the eyes of Dame Manot. Bourgeot behaved in the most inexplicably hilarious manner. He rubbed his hands, chuckled, and laughed to himself, tossed up his hat, then checked his mirthful demonstrations with comical self-rebuke, and, plunging into his snuff-box, extravagantly powdered his new suit with its dingy contents. When Ursule suggested that they should drive to the Bois de Boulogne, he replied, We shall see, we shall see, and hummed a gay tune, alternately looking out of the window and into the carriage to watch Sylvie's face. Why, we are in the Faubourg Saint-Germain, exclaimed Ursule, and here we are stopping. Are we indeed, responded Bourgeot jocosely. How stupid of that pompous, thick-skulled coachman, is it not? I suppose he does not know what he is about. A massive gate was thrown open, and they drove into a spacious court, and stopped before the entrance of a superb mansion. What does this mean? asked Ursul, Englishman. Sylvie's face echoed the question. We shall see, we shall see, replied Bourgeot, still vehemently rubbing his hands. But where are we? Whom are we going to see? inquired Ursul, now wrought up into a high pitch of nervous agitation. One of my pupils, answered the musician proudly. Come, let me give you a hand out. Give me your hand first, Mademoiselle Ersoul. Very unwillingly, and with a frightened air, the spinster obeyed. As the door of the magnificent residence was thrown open by a liveried servant, she drew back, almost clung to Sylvie, who was mounting the steps. They had hardly crossed the threshold when light feet were heard in the distance, and a fairy-like form glided rapidly towards them, and Sylvie was clasped in the arms of Honorine. While she embraced her humble friend, Mademoiselle de Saint-Amar turned her head towards Bougeot, exclaiming, You would not promise to come, and yet I looked for you. I was watching at the window. Ah, oh, Mademoiselle Sylvie, how we missed your beautiful voice, how we have mourned over your illness. Sylvie, for the first time for a long period, made an effort to speak. One moment she had forgotten her lost faculty. The gasping, guttural sound died away in a faint groan. She was more keenly conscious than ever before of her privation, and intense pain mingled with the joy of again beholding Mademoiselle de Saint-Amour. That mute, woeful gaze turned on Honorine was more pathetic than words or tears. Maître Bougeot, unnoticed by Sylvie, had possessed himself of the little porcelain slate, which he now placed in her hands. The shrinking Ursule was then presented to their youthful hostess, whose courteous greeting partially restored the equanimity of her confused visitor. The latter was ejaculating to herself, How fortunate that I chose Sylvie that black silk dress and velvet bonnet, and that I put on my best of everything. Honorine, without loosening her clasp of Sylvie's hand, led the way to her own boudoir. Ursule paused in wonder as her feet sank into the depths of the soft carpet, among the mimic flowers as vivid and lifelike as though they had been freshly strewn to cover the floor. Then her eyes wandered, in amazed admiration, over the masterly pictures, 
chaste statues, costly mirrors, rich draperies, and other exquisitely tasteful ornaments of the apartment. But Sylvie, seated beside Honorine, her small hand imprisoned in one as tiny, looked only into the bright face before her, unconsciously tracing in the clear amber eyes an ample brow, a resemblance that quickened her pulses and sent the ruby current in a pleasant glow through her violet veins. Three years before the date of our narrative, the parents of the Marquis de Saint-Amar and of his only sister were numbered among the victims of the cholera, then raging in Paris. Mademoiselle de Saint-Amar was eighteen at that period, though her infantile form and childlike manners caused her to appear much younger. Her brother was ten years her senior, a widowed and childless aunt, whose fortune had been dissipated by a profligate husband, was invited by the Marquis to preside over his household and become the chaperone or social guardian of his sister. Madame de la Tour accepted this pleasant post with gratification, though hardly with gratitude, for her narrow nature had scant room for the play of that noble emotion. Conventionality was her creed, the laws of good society her decalogue, indolence her heaven, unruffled quietude, free from responsibility, and an existence smoothly gliding through the worn channels approved by the world, were to her the acme of felicity. This repugnance to exertion enabled her spirited young niece, the spoiled darling of the household, a rosebud set with little willful thorns, to gain ascendancy over her, and to enjoy larger liberty than is accorded to young French maidens of her rank. Madame de la Tour was subject to migraine, and various imaginary ailments, the mantle of an invalid being a graceful cloak for her constitutional inertness. Honorine was consequently left to follow the bent of her own girlish impulses. She had no idea of imprisoning herself whenever her legitimate chaperone kept within doors, and tormented her brother into becoming her escort. Though among the Parisian elite, a brother is not exactly regarded as a fitting protector for a high-born maiden. It was on one of these occasions that she first beheld, heard, rapturously admired, and formed the acquaintance of the successful debutante. In vain, Madame de la Tour chided her niece for an unaristocratic amount of enthusiasm. The peace-loving elder lady had not strength of character to contend against the good-humored willfulness and pretty petulancies of the younger, and, little by little, Honorine gained complete mastery and established a right to choice of her friends. But this apathetic guardian, whose thoughts and times were somewhat unequally divided between her supposed ailments, her toilette, her lap-dogs, and her niece, the last receiving the smallest share, when a favorite end was to be obtained, roused herself sufficiently to exhibit a decided talent for plotting. By the aid of this feminine accomplishment, she did not scruple to work out any desirable consummation. Maneuvering was her sole weapon of power, her scepter over her rebellious subject and relative. She never tried to compel the wayward girl to any course, but she often laid snares to entrap her into paths she had no inclination to tread. We return to the occupants of the boudoir. Honorine was telling Sylvie how often and how anxiously she had inquired after her, and how kindly Monsieur Bougeot had supplied her with bulletins. How I longed to see you while you were ill, cried Honorine. But there was no managing it, or you certainly would have found me at your side. That tiresome aunt of mine, Madame de la Tour, refused to accompany me on what she called one of my romantic expeditions. Though, 
I tried to startle her into acquiescence by threatening to go alone, as I could not induce my brother into your sick room. It was so vexatious. Sylvie wrote her answers on the little slate. They were somewhat brief and constrained until her master was mentioned, and Honorine described his triumphs in public, his rapidly growing fame, and his popularity among his pupils. Then Sylvie's face grew radiant, and no pencil was needed to express her thankfulness and delight. At that moment, a firm and manly tread was heard traversing the corridor. The sound went throbbing through Sylvie, as though all her faculties were merged into one sense of hearing. Honorine, bending her slender throat to glance over her shoulder at the door, exclaimed, Stanislaus! are you there the marquis de saint amar advanced towards sylvie and her sister and after greeting the former cordially though not with sufficient warmth to embarrass her saluted ursule and maitre bouchot and entered into the conversation with the latter ursule was absorbed in contemplation of the full-length picture of a lovely lady in court attire she had not ventured to address Mademoiselle de Saint-Omar, but now inquired timidly, Is that a portrait? The portrait is of my mother, replied Honorine, rising and joining her. She suddenly remembered that she had wholly neglected Sylvie's humble chaperon, and endeavored to atone for her forgetfulness by pointing out and explaining the various subjects that adored the wall. Bougeot also became a listener, and the Marquis approached Sylvie, who remained seated. After one or two observations, to which she replied upon her slate, he unreflectingly, or perhaps because it did not seem polite to use an advantage which she did not seem to possess, continued the interchange of remarks by writing. The silence attracted his sister's attention, and, looking around, she saw her brother's pencil rapidly moving over the slate. Why, Stanislaus, have you, too, lost your voice? she saucily asked. He answered, laughingly, Really, I almost fancied that I had, just as a deaf man shouts to his neighbor, thinking that he also cannot hear. Come and listen to the voices of my birds, and make Mademoiselle Sylvie acknowledge how many of her notes have been stolen from them, said Honorine, throwing open the glass doors of a spacious conservatory, which more nearly resembled a garden. The rarest floral products of all seasons had united in a simultaneous bloom, and were planted in beds, intersected by winding walks. In the center, a fountain set up out of the mouths of glittering dolphins, jets of waters that fell in diamond showers over the figure of a shell-crowned undine. Birds whose green cages were concealed in the branches of oriental trees warbled among the brows, ignoring their captivity. At the further end, vines of the passion flower, jasmine, and clambering roses mingled together, formed an arbor, the framework of which was invisible through its drapery of foliage and flowers. Several rustic chairs stood within the bower. This is my study, said Honorine, and here is my stool of instruction and repentance, she added, singling out a Lilliputian chair formed of twisted grapevines. She motioned to Sylvie to be seated, but the enraptured girl shook her head and stretched forth her hands toward the brilliant portiere, charmed onward by irresistible impulse. Honorine permitted her guest to wander about at will, while she herself flitted with hummingbird motion from plant to plant, rifling the choicest of their blossoms to make a bouquet. Before it was presented to her young friend, the Marquis had gathered one sprig of heliotrope and offered it to Sylvie, bending upon her an earnest gaze that seemed to penetrate into her very heart. Did he mean to discover by her manner whether she remembered that he had once before placed a branch of these sweet-scented flowers in her hand? If he did, 
the down dropping of her eyelids and the sudden crimson that flushed into her cheeks and covered her very brow with its virginal veil must have eloquently answered his inquiry honorine held out the magnificent bouquet she had called without lifting her eyes sylvie placed the heliotrope in her bosom and took the flowers of her hostess noon sounded and maitre bougeot whose time had now become very valuable declared that he had not another moment at his command and they must take their leave you will surely come again come soon and come often said mademoiselle de saint amar to sylvie it will do you so much good to be imprisoned here among my birds who will lend you the music of their voices until you regain the surpassing melody of your own will you not insist upon her coming frequently and will you not accompany her mademoiselle valette she added addressing her soul Ursule expressed her thanks for the courteous invitation by low reverence without trusting her tongue. It would make me glad to come, wrote Sylvie. And I have a passion for making people glad. That is an additional reason why you should return soon, replied Honorine. The Marquis handed the ladies into the carriage, but Sylvie's averted eyes were not once again raised to his. The tell-tale blush, which had treacherously revealed her innermost thoughts, deepened on her cheek beneath the gaze which she felt but could not see. An indivinable sense of shame weighed down her lids. Once more in the secluded little chamber, she sat down and pored over the porcelain slate, reading and re-reading characters in her own and another handwriting. I fear it may never be restored, she had written in answer to the very natural hope expressed by the Marquis that she would shortly regain her voice. Then followed these words in his hand. If it should not be, if it is gone forever, it would still exist for me. I have never ceased to hear those marvelous tones. Has not your privation been very difficult to endure? The reply, very difficult, was written beneath, then followed in his characters. To those who truly value you, you must only be endeared by such a trial. At that moment, Honorine had interrupted the correspondence. Could Sylvie efface those precious lines? No, oh no. They were too full of consolation. They inspired her with too much hope. They filled her soul with suggestions too delightfully soothing. Ah, surely, she said internally, the sorest sorrow must be endurable in an atmosphere of love. I can only bear mine if it endears me to others. So argues every deeply affectionate nature until the sorrow is sent. The fresh spray of heliotrope, before its amethyst hue had begun to pale, was placed beside the withered sprig. In the narrow compass between the two, what happy memories were bounded. Did Sylvie then presume to love the Marquis de Saint-Amar? She would have been startled, almost shocked, if any human being, if even that inward monitor who abruptly propounds the most searching questions, had made that inquiry. We must plead guilty to the weakness of believing that love often leaps into existence unawares and with the first impression at first sight. Darting across the awakening soul as the first streak of light flashes over the gray sky of morning and gives assurance of a sun behind which, by and by, will flood the heavens with its meridian splendor. Often that first sun-ray of love illumines the horizon of maidenhood when as little is known, save by intuition, of the character, mind, and person of him whose hand kindled the prophetic flash, as Sylvie knew of the Marquis de Saint-Amar. The one face haunts, the voice echoes in the ear, palpitating through the spirit, an electric thrill shoots athwart the frame at the lightest touch of the chosen one's hand. 
His presence brightens all creation and wings the heaviest hours. The pulses are attuned in harmony to the beating of his. An internal recognition makes the briefest acquaintance seem of long existence, and the most incomprehensible and contradictory traits reasonable and natural. All this is very unphilosophical, very absurd, very, except to those who have themselves experienced the sensation. During the next six weeks, Honorine constantly sent her carriages for Sylvie and Ursule, and many were the pleasant mornings they passed together. Madame de Latour could not be said to smile upon this singular intimacy, but she found Sylvie so gentle, ladylike, and unobtrusive, and Honorine so determined in her infatuation that she did not yet see sufficient cause to take the trouble of laying any of her pleasant little plots to break up their intercourse. The Marquis was usually present, though now and then Sylvie came without his being apprised. He had introduced her to his library, and often selected choice volumes for her perusal. He was in the habit of reading aloud to his sister, and her two lowly visitors also became his auditors. Sylvie's mind was thus becoming cultivated, and her developing taste for literature strengthened every day. What a new world of thought and information was open to her! How she longed to enjoy the full advantages of regular study! Her aptness and quickness were amazing, and Honorine, in spite of her superior acquirements, often felt that Sylvie was better able than herself to comprehend the author's with whom they were brought into communion by their self-constitution teachers of belles-lettres. Sylvie's health was not merely restored, but it was more firmly established than it had ever been before. Her fragile form was gradually rounding, and the pallor and sallowness of her complexion had given place to a clear, creamy hue, tinged with the faintest rose, her bearing and manners became more and more polished by contact with the refined beings among whom she moved. To what good could all these captivating changes tend? She no longer carried the little porcelain slate from which certain characters had never been effaced. Honorine had presented her with ivory tablets held in a cover of blue enamel upon which one word, Sylvie, was traced in pearls, a slender gold pencil was suspended from the finely wrought Venetian chain to which the tablets were attached. Sylvie now always wore the chain about her neck and the tablets in her girdle. Pencil and tablets were in frequent requisition for her voice. Alas, that remained silent. End of chapter 11